0: You're listening to A Stranger Cast at thestranger.com.
1: Hey, it's Wednesday, July 24th, and I'm Eli Sanders, and this is Blabbermouth, The Stranger Podcast, in which we talk about what's going on this week. Dan Savage is here. Rich Smith is here. A lot is going on. We will talk first about the Mueller hearings, which were in process as we recorded the show. We'll also talk about Trump's ICE raids, and then we get a call from a listener in Eugene who looks at everything that's happening and more importantly, everything that's not happening and asks in all seriousness, why isn't the revolution coming? We try to answer him. And then Katie Hertzog talks about a huge New Yorker investigation into the accusations against Al Franken. They resulted in his resignation from the Senate but Jane Meyer at The New Yorker found that Franken's first accuser has a story that really does not stand up to scrutiny. What do we make of this new information? And finally, Jasmine and Chase take a couple of calls from you about recommendations for shows they made on the show last week. And then they tell you about the new Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which both Jasmine and Chase got to see the night before we recorded the show. But first, Dan Savage and Rich Smith on the Mueller hearings. Dan Savage, hello. Hey, Eli. Rich, hello. Hi, Eli. Have you both been watching the Mueller
2: hearings, which are happening as we talk? Are you watching them right now? And miss out on a chance to see my father in action? (laughs) Of course I've been watching them.
3: Dan, are you watching? I'm watching. I've been watching a little bit here and there, mostly clips on Twitter. Nothing matters. Nothing is going to happen. (laughs) 37 indictments, seven guilty pleas, two trials, both ending in convictions. Manafort, Cohen, Flynn, Gates, George Nader, a convicted child rapist, walking in and out of the Oval Office, facing fresh child rape charges, a witness in the Mueller investigation. Nothing matters. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. I can't listen to MSNBC anymore because of the buildup like, oh, this could be a game changer. Nothing's going to change this game. How many times are we going to edge ourselves about what Mueller (laughs) may or may not do the load he may or may not blow all over our fucking faces? As you can see, I'm in despair.
2: Yeah, I mean, listening to Nadler's, like, leading questions saying, like, you know, Mueller, is this right? Did you really say that, um, you know, that there's grounds for obstruction here? And the only reason why you didn't do it was because of the DOJ um, uh, guidelines. And then hearing, you know, Mueller respond with like, yeah, that, that, that's right. You know, these very curt replies. It just, it, it's a, a impeach him. I I have one acronym swimming through my brain whenever (laughs) I, while I'm watching this, and it's ITMFA.
3: And and you got to love the Republican argument that the investigation was uh, unjust and shouldn't have taken place because you can't indict the president. Therefore, there should be no investigations of the president, period. So basically, they're arguing that Donald Trump could indeed walk into the middle of Fifth Avenue, pull out a gun and shoot someone dead and face no criminal charges. Not just Donald Trump's argument that he wouldn't lose any of his voters, which is, of course, true, but he also wouldn't face an investigation because he's the president and can't be indicted. Therefore, the investigation itself is illegitimate you know, okay, whatever, whatever, we're doomed, we're fucked.
1: (laughs) I did see a little headline that said that Mueller said his report did not exculpate Trump, which is a little (laughs) different than exonerate, but kind of in the same family. And more interesting, but more frustrating, Dan, for your edging. Uh, He said that Trump could still be charged after he leaves office, which to your point about nothing getting done right now may be the only way that this resolves with any
3: sort of justice. That presumes Trump is going to leave office. Uh, As (laughs) other people have pointed out, and I think this is really harrowing to contemplate, should he lose the election, the most dangerous three months in American history are going to be between the November The first week of November and the 20th or 21st of January when he's supposed to hand over power. We don't know what he is going to do. If he concedes the election, he may lose and claim that it was rigged or that millions of illegals voted and and refused to concede. What happens then? Yeah, we can indict him or he could be indicted. He could face charges after he's no longer president. When's that going to happen? I'm in despair of even that. At this moment,
1: the other thing that I thought in the brief moment that I could take watching this, you know, at like seven in the morning Seattle time was that the Democrats in Congress and just Congress in general is not equipped for this moment. Like they are trying to relive Watergate. They are trying to do a Watergate John Dean moment. They are living in a kind of past where everyone sits around Three networks and watches the same information. And that just doesn't happen anymore. People don't sit and watch things for a long time. They don't have time to think about the little bits of information that they do get. And everything is contested as you're seeing even within the hearing, where Republicans present one reality, the whole investigation was corrupt, and Democrats are trying to hammer at a complex set of facts that if you pay attention to them are really damning. But who wants to pay attention to facts? And nobody's being John
3: Dean. Tell people who John Dean was. Nobody is stepping up. John Dean worked for Richard Nixon. And he was just like, all right, this is enough. I've witnessed so much criminality. I can't in good conscience, say nothing. And he ratted out the president. Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. Where is the John Dean now? People thought maybe Mueller, Republican former head of the FBI, would step up, would ignore the DOJ directive. It's not a constitutional mandate not to indict the president and indict the fucking president. Nobody is rising to this moment of crisis and taking the actions that need to be taken. And I am, again, in despair with my blue balls getting edged endlessly by Rachel Maddow, which is terrifying to even conjure up a mental image of <laughs> those
2: directives by the way just to add on to the that point were written by d- dojs under nixon and clinton so both of those dojs had there was supposed to be separation obviously between doj and the president but you know they were written by friendly f- uh, forces and just to add on to your point eli d- the democrats are also trying to make good tv but muller is not letting them <laughs> yeah e- early on nadler said um you're you know ask him like what could you please say in Amer- plain english what you meant by the uh, the report didn't exonerate trump and then he, he then he gave the exculpate line he used yeah. an even more difficult word an even less straightforward word and
1: every other thing he says is i would refer you to my report and i was
2: listening to this you
1: know for 15 minutes which is about as much as i could take this mm-hmm. morning And I I was thinking, we have a president who doesn't read. That's not hyperbole. Like the guy can't take uh, any sort of briefing paper longer than a page and it has to have images if it's on a page. That's what you keep hearing. Mm -hmm. The president doesn't read, so he certainly hasn't read the report. And Americans, by and large, have not read the report either. And sitting down and reading, you know, hundreds of pages of anything is unfortunately out of fashion right now so you have a guy who answers every question with read the report and uh an electorate you know a, a public a general public that certainly hasn't read it for the most part and a president who has it either but everyone who has strong opinions about what the hell it says okay
3: full disclosure I haven't read it have you read it all the way through? <laughs> I have
1: not read the whole thing I have not read the whole thing but I have read parts of it but n- no that's that's Kind of where I'm coming from on this, if I, as someone who is kind of paid to read these sorts of things, have not sat down and read the whole thing, I really doubt that most other people have. And that is where we need Mueller to talk in plain language and why it's so frustrating that he's not.
3: The head of the FBI yesterday during congressional testimony said that he hasn't read the whole fucking thing. The head of the FBI <laughs> who should have read it, is literally paid to read it, hasn't read it. So I don't feel too guilty that okay. like, the sex advice columnist with the filthy mouth hasn't read it, but I have read enough <laughs> written by people who have read it to know that they should be impeached the motherfucker already.
1: So just to uh, flag what's going on while all of this is maybe occupying a lot of people's attention, this past week Trump launched his big immigration raids, talking about all the other outrages that are going on in addition to what's chronicled in the Mueller report, which no one's read. So the ICE raids happened, I think – there's this weird thing where it turns out only 35 people were actually detained. And on the left, where we've been hearing Trump, you know, talk about how thousands of people are going to be rounded up and reported, that kind of feels like some sort of victory in a way, although it's horrifying for the 35 people who were detained and their families. Um, But we have yet one more cycle of this, I don't know, just kind of... uh, propaganda, bullshit, where Trump talks about kind of edges along his um, mob and tells them we're going to round him up and deport him. And whether or not what he's talking about actually happens doesn't matter. There was a story this week about how he hasn't built one mile of border wall, but a lot of people still love him for building the wall. And here we are, right? As Dan was saying, it seems like sometimes nothing is working and nothing matters which tees up a call that I wanted to play. And it's a call from a Blabbermouth listener in Eugene, who, like a lot of people, was really struck by that call two episodes ago from Angry Jen, who said, among other things, get a grip, people on the left. You might have to make some accommodations to imperfect candidates because, look, the revolution isn't coming if the revolution was coming, it would have come by now. And the caller from Eugene asks this.
4: Hey, Blabber guys. So I've been recently catching up on some of your episodes and got to hear the lovely angered phone call by Jen, the one that was chewing out uh, some of your staff for their reactions to the booty Buttigieg Biden ticket concept. And something she said really stuck in my head. You know, the revolution hasn't come. The revolution isn't coming. I'd like to throw that out to you guys in the studio and your listeners. Why not now? What, no time like the present. Why isn't there being a mass organization not to just go to these ice camps and concentration camps and detention centers and protests? Why aren't people trying to do a strike to free these prisoners of human rights abuses to liberate these people that are being persecuted. I think we need to start the revolution. We have a sycophant, sociopathic, narcissist, racist in the White House who's trying to turn the United States into the Fourth Reich. We need to act. When the system stops working, it's time for the people to stand up.
1: Why the fuck hasn't the revolution come already?
3: The revolution just came to Puerto Rico. And watching what's happened in Puerto Rico, where the Republican governor of Puerto Rico was revealed to have said all of these incendiary things to staffers and a whole bunch of his cronies have now been indicted. And he may have already resigned by the time people are listening to this. He may have resigned already by the time I'm saying this. Uh, Revolutions don't come until they come. And they tend to come... Suddenly, And there's usually an instigating event. But I, you know, to return to the despair theme, I expected the Mm -hmm. revolution in 2000 when Al Gore clearly won the election and George W. Bush and the corrupt, already captured by Republicans and conservatives, Supreme Court handed in the election, shut down the vote count in Florida. Gore won the popular vote. And I expected there were giant protests at George Bush's election. But the revolution at that moment ended with one egg hitting George W. Bush's limousine during the inaugural parade. And that was it. Americans don't seem to want to get up off their asses and risk anything in public, risk arrest, risk disruption. We've criminalized dissent. We've uh, militarized police forces. You know, we have the First Amendment, but we don't seem to have it really. We don't have it in our hearts and we don't have it, I think, Publicly, policy wouldn't allow it. It would be shut down. There's a kind of learned helplessness, I think, that stemmed out of the 2000 election and has extended now into Trump's administration. And we're just all laying down on the floor with our ankles behind our ears, taking it.
2: Rich,
1: he wants to hear from everyone. Why isn't the revolution here?
2: I've got uh, two responses to this. The, the, my general response to this is uh, because you're not helping. Uh, my yes, you me you personally. Know. No, no. I mean the the caller. If you have to ask, why isn't the revolution coming? The passivity implied in that question is is. Very suggestive, very evocative to me. self indicting. You're not actively trying to make yes, you're self-indicting. You're. It means you're not trying to make the revolution come. Um, my, I have. There's a good reason for that, probably. Uh, and I don't know anything about you know the, the caller, but I would just say, and I'm borrowing this line of logic from uh, Charles Mudede uh, about uh, climate change. Another. This is rush. another stranger writer. Right. Uh, The revolution won't happen until a bunch of white people start dying. Uh, Trump's uh, uh, administration has been focusing its cruelty most directly on people of color, though uh, in minorities. Um, though you mentioned only 35 people were rounded up in the sweeps uh, this time, 900 uh, undocumented people have been arrested and deported since May. Uh, just because there was you know, one big raid that wasn't as big as he promised doesn't mean that people aren't still being arrested. Families aren't still being arrested, being separated from each other at, at alarming rates. Now, Trump's policies, especially as they relate to the opioid crisis, are killing tons of white people, tons of people who uh, voted for uh, Trump, Um, tons of brown people, too. Uh, but the Republicans have somehow convinced them that it's in their best interest not to uh, fight against that, to decouple uh, the Republican um, policies from their deaths and from the pain that they experience in their lives. So until that happens, there's it's going to be very difficult to um, to lead the revolution.
1: And I ask myself this question also. Actually, you you look at what's happening. You look at the concentration camps along the border you look at trump threatening you know heedlessly threatening other countries with annihilation you look at his xenophobia and his nationalism and the real uh, not exaggerated comparisons to other strongmen and dictators who have done terrible things throughout history and you and yeah i why why isn't this happening and what should i be doing right now right so when i when i look at that question sort of self critically The thing that I see myself doing, and, you know, I can argue with myself about whether this is valid and other people can too, but my answer to myself today is, okay, throughout history, revolutions, as Dan said, they're sudden, they're unpredictable. Also, they take a while. (laughs) They take a long time. They're very bloody. You don't know where the hell they're going to actually go. And when I count down the clock between now and November 2020, I end up saying to myself, okay, well, if we, I'm sorry to be all calendar oriented here, but as the calendar bookkeeper, if we start a revolution on July 24th, 2019, we're all still going to be killing each other by November 2020. And maybe it's better
2: to just vote them out. Maybe a compromise could be to just um, uh, implore your member of Congress to begin impeachment hearings as soon as you can. I mean, right now we have a lot of moderate Democrats afraid that they're not going to be reelected uh, in eighteen months uh, if they start, in, if they uh, come out for impeachment. Tell them, if you, especially if you live in a swing state or a, a swing district, that uh, you got their back.
3: I just want to point out that they're already killing white people. A report came out that shows, and this predates Trump. Not expanding Medicaid under Obamacare has cost tens of thousands of lives, mostly of white people in red states they 've just approved the use of a pesticide that causes brain damage and kills children that's that 's been banned everywhere else and the Trump administration just approved its use they 're not going to be spraying that pesticide in our neighborhood in Seattle and they 're not going to be spraying that Pesticide in Central Park in New York, they're going to be spraying it all over red states and killing the children of red state voters. Um, the, the, like Rich said, the opioid et- epidemic, Trump voters. People who are invested in white supremacy and trying to engineer white minority rule, they don't really care if other white people or even they themselves are killed or harmed so long as the Republicans in the Trump administration and other Republican administrations prior to Trump are hurting more people of color than they are white people. They are willing to lay down their own lives and die in the service of doing more or as much possible harm as they can do to people of color. It is literally insane.
1: Okay, listeners, this was a provocative question in response to Angry Jen's provocative call. And just so you know, the caller from Eugene wanted to know what Blowermouth listeners think is their answer to this question, too. So if you've got one, call the Blower phone, 206-302-2063. Next, we're going to talk about Al Franken. Maybe you need a student loan. And maybe you think that figuring out how student loans work shouldn't require a finance degree. Well, Earnest can help you figure out the details and make smart money-saving choices with an easy, smartphone-friendly application. Earnest has designed a private student loan for actual students in 2019, meaning you can apply totally on your phone. They offer customizable loan terms, low interest rates, and no fees. They also give you three extra months, nine total, after leaving school to start paying back your private student loan and earnest private student loans can cover up to 100% of your school's cost of attendance plus the internet loves earnest's customer service they're rated 9.4 out of 10 on Trustpilot simply fill out a quick 2-minute eligibility check invite a cosigner if you choose to read the fine print and apply with the school year starting soon, our listeners can get a $100 cash bonus when you get a private student loan at earnest.com slash blabbermouth. That's $100 as a cash bonus when you get a private student loan at earnest.com slash blabbermouth, and you can see terms and conditions on the site. Go to earnest.com slash blabbermouth today. Don't let student loans stand in your way. Take control with earnest. Katie Hertzog. hello. Hi. You have recently finished reading a very long, very interesting New Yorker investigation by Jane Meyer into what they call the case of Al Franken. Remind people just very briefly. What happened with Al Franken and why he's no longer a U.S. senator?
0: He, yeah, he's no longer with us. He's in Minnesota, <laughs> licking his wounds and uh, hosting a podcast, which is apparently what you do <laughs> when uh, when your career is when your career goes in the toilet.
1: I think about that every day too.
0: <laughs> so uh, Jay Mayer from um, the New Yorker investigated the claims against Al Franken, specifically the first claims, which were made against by a woman named Leanne Tweedon, who it turns out is a uh, as a, a conservative conspiracy theorist she was a truther you know one of these people who pushed the lie that barack obama wasn't an american good friends with sean hannity so uh she investigated the claims that tweeted made against franken and it turns out that it turns out that they really don't hold up to scrutiny and she did really deep reporting on this like very famously there was a picture that Leanne Tweedon published that showed very damning photo it showed her asleep and uh, wearing a flak jacket on a USO tour and Al Franken it looked like he was pretending to grab her breasts or maybe actually grabbing her breast to a flak jacket um, and so Jane Mayer went and got the metadata for the photo she found out that lots of the stories that's that Sweden told around this event just didn't hold up underwater uh, hold up under scrutiny
1: and one of the most interesting things I thought from this story and it gets repeated a couple times is that well, one, people knew, including Sean Hannity, for a long time that this photo existed, like years and years. And in a small circle of Tweedon and Hannity and uh Roger Ailes and Roger Stone, other, yeah. Roger Stone, other um provocateurs and kind of uh hitmen in a way on the right, they they had literally said, I think in some sort of legal deposition, one of them said Al Franken will get his at some point and it's going to come out of nowhere and it's going to run him over like a freight train. I mean, th- I'm paraphrasing, but that's what they promised. And that is what happened here. He didn't know this was coming and it all happened at a very particular moment in the Me Too um, explosion and uh, and on Congress's calendar just before the Thanksgiving recess and the story kind of in a case of journalistic malpractice here was out there with the photo before anyone called Franken for comment or anything like that. And that seems to have been clearly by design. So the lie, as they say, was all the way around the planet before, you know, any sort of attempt at the truth could put on its shoes. And Franken, as Jane Meyer recounts, kept saying at the beginning, well, I want to have a Senate hearing, a Senate ethics committee investigation where the truth more slowly would come out. And that never happens. And no one really ends up investigating these claims. It's just that the claims were made, the photo was out there, and it was a very uncomfortable photo to look at, particularly out of context. And uh, Franken was forced to resign.
3: And that was it. And no one investigated except Jane Meyer. And six or seven other women did come forward uh, in the wake of the Tweedon accusation to say that Al Franken had done things, touched them in ways during photographs of political events that made them feel uncomfortable. And that all kind of got rounded up to Harvey Weinstein. And I think it's important when you talk about the context of that photo, there was a bit in this skit that Al Franken wrote years ago and had performed with other actresses that then Tweedon claimed he'd written expressly so he could kiss her on the mouth, which was false, verifiably false. There was a bit, there was a moment in that skit or one of the other skits they performed where he reached out to grab her breasts and Franken says that they were just kind of reenacting that bit and it was bad and he shouldn't have done it and she was asleep uh, and they were just kind of goofing around doing like physical bits and he did that and a photograph was taken. Tweeden also claimed that the photograph was sent only to her so as to make her feel uncomfortable and so that Franken could flip her off one last time. And the photo was actually included in all the USO DVD discs that were sent to everyone who was a part of that tour. Mm -hmm. There were so many bustable, verifiably false claims in Tweeden's account that never came out or never came out uh, until now. Does that mean Franken shouldn't have resigned as another conversation?
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, a lot of people said this at the time, and I sort of agree with it. At the time, this was during the... um, Uh, The Roy Moore, the allegations against Roy Moore, and it would have looked terrible for the party to say this one thing is okay, This other thing is not okay. Even if we can all we can all agree that there are gradations to human behavior. And it is worse for a grown man to hit on 14 year olds than a grown man to participate in a skit or, you know, sort of do these jokey things. But at the moment, everybody was wrapped up in this. I don't think that necessarily him resigning was the wrong thing to do. But he also didn't have another option. It was a little bit like jumping off of a building or jumping off a building when, it, when it's on fire. You know, Chuck Schumer told him apparently that he had three weeks after the, after the allegations made. he had until 5 p.m. one day to, to resign or he was going to turn the Democratic caucus against him. It, he didn't really have much of an option there.
3: And the takeaway from Franken's resignation seems to be never resign. Yes. Uh, Franken looks at and and talks about in in Meyer's piece, the fact that Biden arguably has done worse and done worse on camera. And there are photos, but he just dug in his heels and refused to, you know, apologize, but refused to not run for fucking president and is running for president and polling well. Or Ralph Northam. You know, certainly, and certainly on the right, you know, Donald Trump has been accused by more than 20 women of sexual assault and rape, including in a deposition by his ex-wife that then she later withdrew. But he's not resigning. He's not admitting anything. Biden took responsibility, says he's going to try to do better. Trump says all of these women, all twenty of them, are liars, and is still fucking president. Right. Well, let's. I- so the takeaway here for, for for all politicians going forward is deny and refuse to resign. That's the lesson of Franken's resignation. Or
0: demand an investigation, I mean, which is what he did in the beginning, and it just didn't happen.
3: It was interesting
1: to me reading the Meyer piece. I mean, it's just so clear that uh, speed is the enemy of truth. And so in the in the Franken case, the speed with which this happened just really did no no justice to the truth of the Tweeden accusation. There are these other accusations that came out after it that, you know, some of them were anonymous, so Meyer couldn't reinvestigate them. And then others she did look into, and there were things that made people uncomfortable. And, and I think that's where we all land on, well, you know. There, there's not nothing there, but this first instigating something uh, was was maybe not what it was presented as. But I, I just kept on thinking about the uh, Kavanaugh hearing and the speed – if speed is the enemy of truth, the speed with which they ran that through rather than have an actual investigation um, was, again – trying to steamroll the truth. There's a lot to investigate there. Maybe the allegations would have proved not true. I don't know. There's a lot there. But we've also stopped investigating that one, and we just don't know what happened.
3: The the speed thing seems to be a double-edged sword because what we're told is, you know, speed was the enemy of truth where Franken was concerned and he was destroyed. But when it comes to Trump, you know, we're told that the the, the rapidity of the news cycle, the speed at which some new outrage comes along – Gets him off the hook endlessly, like fucking mm-hmm. Roadrunner. Right, and so how does it work in in, in two different ways for for two different high profile politicians for two different parties, where speed benefits Kavanaugh, benefits Trump, but destroys Frank.
0: I mean, everything is like that when it comes to Trump. He, he, the rules just don't apply to them and we to him, and we see it over and over and over.
3: Well, so the Jane
1: Meyer piece is definitely worth reading. If you're listening to us talk about it and you're thinking, wow, you guys are kind of blithely discrediting you know, a claim that I took to be credible. Well, Franken talks about that and about how he really felt like he couldn't immediately um, attack the accuser's story, his first accuser's story, because that would come off terribly. And it, it always does. But when we're talking about it in, in nine minutes – it may sound kind of uh, like we're you know, knocking the legs out from under her accusation in a quick way, but it's because we've read this piece, which you really need to read, which is very in-depth and really shows that her claims do not stand up to scrutiny and that people there in real time at the time do not know what she's talking about.
3: One other interesting element of the piece is a bunch of women who knew Franken and, and worked with him, Jane Curtin and others from SNL. Uh, Other people who had interacted with him professionally over the years came to his defense, and it's been kind of a truism of the Me Too movement that that when a woman speaks up for an accused man or a group of women, that they're pilloried for not believing women. And this may be the rare exception – an incident where perhaps we should have listened to the women who were coming to Franken's defense in the immediate wake of the accusations, because they may have been right.
0: Yeah. I think we're going to see more of this going forth. I saw three stories yesterday, including Franken and then a guy at Harvard and a, and a video gamer guy who all lost their jobs or were were penalized in different ways after me too, that have been dismantled in the last 24 hours. So I'm wondering if we're entering another stage, people are filing lawsuits. Reporters are looking back into these stories. Um, a lot of people talked about this is potential an, uh, potentially an overcorrection, and maybe we're seeing a correction to the overcorrection, and we can land in some, some, uh, some place where people get a fair trial, get fair hearing, but also we, you know, listen to women and believe their stories.
3: No, 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 not believe women because women are just as capable yes, of lying sure. or being shitty as men. But take a woman's claims as, as seriously. But that means doing an investigation. That means vetting. That means doing the reporting. And then, you know, if it rises to lawsuits and criminal charges, the investigation, women should be taken seriously, but not necessarily just believed out of No, hand. of course These not. These three stories that you cite may be evidence. Yeah, by.
0: no, uh, women are human beings. Women, as I, I, shocking as it is, women can also be duplicated <laughs> as pieces you of You sure shit. you want
3: to climb out on that limb, Katie?
1: You know we're recording okay, this. <laughs> All right, we will see what happens. We will see if this is a turning point, but... Certainly, there is way more complexity and contradictory evidence involved in the Al Franken story than anyone really knew until this Jane Meyer piece came out. You need to read it. Dan, thank you. Hey, thank you. Katie, thank you. Thank you. Jasmine Kymig, hello. Hi, Eli. Chase Burns, hello. Hello. We got a lot of good calls to the Blabber phone this week, an unusually large number. Thank you all for calling in. And one of them, Jasmine, was in response to your recommendation of the show Years and Years, which is on HBO. HBO, yeah. HBO. All right. Well, you got uh, what I'll call a kind of thank you. Let's listen to it.
5: Hi, I just watched the first episode of Years and Years um, under your recommendation early on a Sunday morning and I was basically in tears. It's terrifying. I just wanted to call and say thanks for ruining my Sunday, I guess. I'm not sure.
6: Uh, I, I guess thanks back. I, I think we did clarify that it was a very like intense show, but, you know, I, I, will, I will take it. I'll take that as a W- Take
1: that as a win. Thank you. <laughs> Take the W when you can get it. I'm right. that was now. cute. Yeah, it was cute. <laughs> we also got another call in response to Katie saying the Aziz Ansari Netflix special was pretty good and that Aziz Ansari did uh, a good job of dismantling the idea of quote performative wokeness. This caller, who did not have a very good phone connection, get a good phone connection when you call people. This caller said, well, hang on a second. If Aziz Ansari is in fact guilty of the things that he is accused of having done in terms of sexual harassment, isn't him standing up and doing this special the very definition of performative wokeness? I thought that was a decent point. And then I got a call from someone who heard me reacting to the years and years recommendation last week. I was like, no, I don't want to live in a, you know, another Trump-like reality. I want to disappear into some pleasant British reality, like British Bake Off and all that. And this caller offered me a British show.
5: Hi, Eli. I was calling specifically for you because you said that you wanted to escape into a British reality. And I just wanted to let you know that the first five and a half seasons of Love Island are on Hulu. They're perfect. They're British. It's just perfect. (laughs)
6: yeah love island is maybe dystopic in a very different direction
1: (laughs) what is it i've never Um, heard of it
6: i've never watched it i've only seen twitter completely melt down um whenever it it comes on but from my understanding it's a reality show where a bunch of young hot singles are on an island and
5: yeah don't they have to fuck yeah i think they all have
6: to fuck yeah it's something like yeah. yeah so th- I guess the winning couple, I think you're meant to find like a pair or a mate and then whoever, you know, like there's a winning couple. There's some sort of like m- like money element to it. Uh it's really kind of saucy. It's really kind of backstabby. It-, it involves love and sex.
5: Yeah, it plays on this like American reality TV series that's also where a bunch of hot people get put on an island. They have to like have sex. It's like Survivor with sex. <laughs>
1: Alright, I'd watch that once. Maybe I will and report back. Jasmine and Chase, you both, last night, got to do something that no one else I know has been able to do, and that's watch the new three-hour-long Quentin Tarantino film.
6: Technically,
5: it's two hours and 41 minutes, uh, but it
1: is... I mean,
6: it's essentially... it's lengthy (laughs) uh but for those of you that don't know uh quentin tarantino is dropping a new film out on thursday slash friday called once upon a time in hollywood um and it's his kind of play uh on 1969 in Hollywood, and it stars Leonardo DiCaprio as, as a,
5: Rick Dalton,
6: Rick Dalton, the aging Western, like TV Western star.
5: He's not real, it's he's, a fictional yeah, character. A fictional,
6: and then Brad Pitt plays his stuntman, um, Cliff Booth, Cliff Booth, great name. Um, and uh, he happens to live right next door to Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, mm. uh, who I, I maybe listeners don't know about the Manson murders where in 1969 Sharon Tate and I think three or four other people were murdered in their home by, uh, followers by the Manson family. Um,
1: and Joan Didion in, in, uh, The White Album. And the White Album marks the Manson murders as the moment when the sixties ended. Right. Yeah. And and they are a giant obsession of Hollywood and California.
0: Right.
5: Yeah. And even people on the East Coast, like John Waters, talks about that being a huge turning point for a lot of people, a lot of like weird acid kids who sort of, you know, had to rethink where they were going after these acid fueled murders. And so that's the that's the premise of the movie is that it sort of focuses in on these murders and you sort of feel that tension the whole time but there's a lot of myth making in this movie and it is mostly about uh, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth the Brad Pitt and Leo characters so
6: if you're kind of looking for a hard boiled you know Look at the Manson murders. I wouldn't recommend this film. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, if you're looking for hard boiled anything with Tarantino, I think that you'll be, you know, missing something. Well,
1: um, my thing is like t- the name Tarantino has so much that comes with it for me. And so I just hear Quentin Tarantino's got a new movie, and I think Blood and gore and uh, coke and you know great filmmaking but a lot and then I think two hours and 40 minutes and I'm like really do I right
6: because I I really think I mean he really luxuriates in I think that he's one of the last directors that really knows how to make a film and a whole event (laughs) you know and I think that he for two hours of this film is really him kind of reflecting on Hollywood and, and on Western as a genre, um, on, on you know, f- movie stars, uh, on what Hollywood really means. Um, and he makes you kind of watch a lot of films with him, right? So you have a lot of characters that watch things that were like FBI like a film or a TV show that came out in the 60s right like everyone sits down and watches that
5: and you have Margot Robbie she goes into a theater she's playing Sharon Tate she go. there's this kind of really beautiful scene where she goes into this theater and she watches uh, a movie with Sharon Tate but it's actually Sharon Tate on the screen Mm -hmm. and you sort of spend this time like I was like wait is that Is that Margot Robbie? No. Oh, no, that's Sharon Tate. And you, and I was like then embarrassed that I couldn't tell the two apart, but you watch Margot Robbie sort of studying the person she's playing and that sort of like meta love of Hollywood is. Throughout all of Tarantino's movies, and it's definitely here. And uh, if you like that, and you're attracted to Tarantino, then this movie will be great. But it's a big, it's a big bet. I mean, it's the middle of summer. Sony's releasing this. It's not, it's not you know a superhero movie. Other people are really releasing like Toy Story Four, and uh, <laughs> it's not a sequel. And uh, it's, it's a big bet, and it costs a lot of money. Um, and it has received a lot of, um, I think, warranted criticism, as most Tarantino movies right. do, about its treatment of women not just that it's violent obviously women can be violent obviously women can like be badass and you know in these murders it was women who were uh, majority doing the murdering um
6: (laughs) women can be murderers too
5: (laughs) but it's the way that he sort of allows all of his female subjects to be desired constantly by his camera by the male characters and they receive as he's been criticized in this movie very little lines and i do think that's a warranted criticism um there's he has justifications for it in this movie that I can't give away because it would be spoilers. But I think, you know, it, it's it's still Tarantino. Yeah. So it comes out when?
6: It comes out this Friday.
5: Yeah. And all
1: in all, I hear go and see it.
6: Yeah. I mean, I I love film. I, I love wa- going to the cinema and sitting down and watching something. And I think that he does a really great job of like, I was there for nearly three hours, and I was in it the whole time, right? I wasn't ever really checking my watch or, or whatever. Um, I, I would recommend it for sure.
5: And I have a really important point. Um, <laughs> at, the, at the Cannes Film Festival, this award, I mean, this film did not win any awards except for the Palm Dog Award. Did you know that there is a Palm Dog Award? I did not. It's a play on the palm door, which is the big award at the Cannes Film Festival, and it ge- it goes to a dog. And this movie has an award winning dog in it. That I mean, I was I was more moved by this dog than really anything else. The in dog the film. does an
6: excellent job. <laughs> yeah.
5: So if so, when you go, just know that you are seeing a movie that already has won awards for its animal actors. All right, Chase. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you.
6: Thanks, Eli.
1: And that's the show. If you've got something you want to say to Dan Savage, Katie Hertzog, Rich Smith, Jasmine Kymig, Chase Burns, or me, call the blabber phone 206-302-2063. Thanks, as always, to Ahame Filet J. Aluo for making the music we use on the show each week, and to Nancy Hartunian for bringing our blabbering mouths to your ears.